Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. I serve on the board at Stanford University and teach courses in their graduate business school, engineering school, and entrepreneurship program. I chair the Chicago chapter of Tiger 21, the investment group for enhanced results with 750 members worldwide, representing assets in excess of $75 billion. And I serve as the chairman of the advisory board for four privately held companies, as well as serving on the advisory board for six public and privately held companies. The Family Office World takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold. One, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I'm thrilled to have as a guest today, Tammy Kesselman. Tammy's known for her innate ability to identify impact-related business model risks overlooked by others. Tammy is a frequently consulted for impact success while maintaining market rate financial returns. She is a partner at an impact investing advisory firm and founder of Aligned Investing Global. Tammy runs sessions for some of the world's wealthiest families, leading asset managers, and is regularly asked to pressure test portfolio investments, advising on diligence, filter revisions for SDG assignment alignments, and for more comprehensive identification, mitigation of ESG risks. She also works directly with entrepreneurial management teams as they iterate businesses from seed through Series C funding rounds and lectures annually on improved impact diligence at Harvard Business School and at conferences for investor audiences around the world. One of her most popular talks based on the proprietary heuristic diligence framework she developed, Investing Smart, draws upon insights from analysis of more than three decades of for-profit, non-profit, and government and investor business models that seemed successful on the surface, but had systematic flaws that should have been flagged from the beginning and ultimately led to underperformance or worse. A social impact strategy book based on her work in this year will be coming out for next year. After earning her MBA from Harvard in business and government strategy, with course curricula across Harvard Kennedy School, Harvard Business School, and Harvard Law School. Prior to her current work, Tammy began her career at Bain Company before being recruited by American Express to join their internal strategic planning group. There, she rose through the ranks to senior director, where she focused on M&A, work with the CEO, and led multiple New York and Asia-based teams for cost-cutting, market expansion, and joint venture projects before leaving to launch her own initiatives, including Align Investing Global, where she took the deep understanding of all facets of global corporate strategy and pivoted to help investors with social impact founder teams with strategic capacity building 
public relations and systems thinking at scale. In 2018, she was elected to the Global Alumni Board of Directors for the Harvard Kennedy School, where she serves as the governance committee. She's also worldwide president of Harvard Alumni and Impact on the steering committee for the Nexus Impact Investing Working Group and chair of the Opal Family Office Investing Forum. I'm thrilled to have Tammy and Tammy, welcome. I'm glad you're here. So Tammy, when I started the show, you know, one of the things I always do is I ask one question first and then we'll dive into the impact investing thing. Um, so many times I ask different people like, you know, what's the family office? And I get hundreds of different answers. So from your perspective, I'm going to ask you this, that question and then we'll dive into your expertise. But if somebody says to you, what's the family office? What is a family office? Good question. To me, it's um, there's a structure around the stewardship of money for multiple generations within the same family. And so that might be from someone outside that's doing it as a virtual one or a multifamily office or in a single family office within one family. But either way, in all of those, I see it as whoever is the deciding person or the deciding investment committee or trusteeship council is deciding how that money is invested on behalf of multiple generations and of significant wealth. Okay, so let's dive into your expertise. So, you know, the family offices that I speak with, and I speak with hundreds of them, uh, it seems to me, uh, and I am not don't have the expertise that you have, that a lot of this is coming from the, the impact is, is coming from the uh, millennials or the younger generation. I guess my first question is, this impact investing, is it real? Is it sustainable? Is it, is it real? I love that question. It's, it's very real. And it's definitely starting off in many families with the next gens, whether they're millennials or younger. Because um, of course, the Gen Zs are now, some of them are in their early 20s. But at the same time, you actually find in corporations, there's as many people at the top uh, as there are the employees who are next gens because the a lot of impact started off and not start off it, it took a great leap forward in 2015 with the un with the sustainable development goals which uh, if you want we can get into the backstory that's kind of interesting um it's one of the first times maybe the first time in history that the un did a program did an initiative where the private sector actually ran with it and and took it leaping forward and and the nonprofit sector it really didn't have the, the pickup in the same amount of time because the private sector was involved in creating it and so you look at a lot of fortune 1000 websites and you'll find stuff on the sustainable development goals and younger employees as well as younger shareholders that are demanding to know that they're that they're taking the world and other issues into account as they relate to that particular company so from the outside world, you see that on, on the public side, and then on the direct side, definitely it's it's coming from the next gens more and more, but there's starting to be a small core that's rapidly growing of, of investment committee members that are seeing why this actually makes sense as a strong fiduciary responsibility strategy as well. And it seems like family offices in particular are really taking up this impact investing thing to the next level. Why is that? Uh, family offices, I think going back to the beginning because they have a multi-generational perspective. So uh, some companies, some individual investors might be looking at long, short strategies, hedge strategies, how they get, how they maximize the next quarter. A family office 
one of the primary goals of it is legacy, is legacy growth and legacy protection. And if you're making plays right now in your investments, whether public or private, that are for short-term gain at long-term cost to the environment, to your community, to your children or your grandchildren, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't resonate as much. So as people think of it in that lens, more and more family offices, they also have much more patient capital and they're able to look at long-term wins where a lot of these plays right now, if you look at the MSCI impact index versus the MSCI, the MSCI actually impact outperforms the MSCI index in the 10 year. And the same on the S&P ESG index, it outperforms the standard um, S&P index in the 10 year. So as patient capital sees that, more patient capital realizes this isn't just about doing right for the world. It's actually about doing right for your wallet. Got it. So here's, you know, one of the issues that I, when I speak to somebody, you know, first generation, you know, an older person, um, and we talk about this, a lot of times what they'll say, and these are people who could be their 70s, 80s, it it doesn't matter, but um, they'll say, look, I'm going to invest to make as much profit as I can. And then in my philanthropy, I'm going to donate to charity. So why, should it, why shouldn't I just do that instead of altering my investment thesis? So uh, I think what you're, what you're talking about, I look at it as the John D. Rockefeller approach, where you know back in the day, and many patriarchs still today, uh, um, make all their money on one side and, and are about maximizing wealth. And then on the other side, it's not that they're not philanthropic. They're very philanthropic and stewards of the community. But... It's um, men are much better than women often at compartmentalizing. So I can make all my money here and I can donate money over there and never the two do meet. But one thing that I've noticed uh, in doing this work, and maybe one of your listeners can get back to me and tell me why this shift happened, but somewhere in the last 10 years, up until about a decade ago, we inherited the British patriarchy system of uh, the wealth, not the wealth itself, but the wealth relationship with the wealth advisor going from patriarch to eldest son or sons. And somewhere in the last decade, that started to shift to a lot of times going from patriarch to matriarch, because of course, men tend to marry younger, women tend to live longer. So more and more, that money is transferring to matriarchs before it transfers to the next gen. And women are much better than men at being synergistic and are not great at compartmentalizing. So if I'm a woman and I'm now the matriarch of the family and I'm in charge of this investment relationship and prioritizing, and I find out from my investment groups online or other groups I'm talking to or research I'm doing, um, maybe all of our philanthropic money is going to cancer research. We've endowed a wing at St. Jude's. We do a lot of other work in cancer. And then I find out that in my mutual funds, I'm in tobacco and fossil fuels. As a woman, that's not going to work as well because I see my money working against itself. But it would be wrong to think that that means that women are want their money to be concessionary, want to give up more returns for impact. Women just as much as men, the matriarch just as much as the patriarch wants that legacy to go to their grandchildren. But they're going to try and find a different way and rebalance their portfolio in a different way. And then as money transfers hands from patriarch or matriarch to the next gens, to millennials, millennials, whether male or female, grew up watching an inconvenient truth in junior high. If you ask any young man or any young woman, do you want to make a lot of money or do you want clean water? That's just a ridiculous question. Like they're always going to choose both, and so you see very quickly as we're we're at the precipice. We're um, tw- from 2017, so we're two and a half years in to 30 trillion dollars 
transferring hands intergenerationally over the next 30 years and 41 trillion over the next 40 years. So there started to just in the last two or three years started to be this, this cliff that we're on where, where money is shifting. And it's going to shift more and more rapidly over the next five to 10 years, where not just family offices, but wealth advisors, if they haven't gotten with the program, they will pretty quickly or, or they'll risk getting overthrown. So where I guess my question here is, it, there's reports, obviously, that you know, roughly a third of the family offices uh, are in invest in impact investing. In, in your opinion, where are we as far as are we in the first inning, second inning, third inning? How early are we in this as far as where this is going to evolve? Again, I think we're, we're only a couple years into it. I mean, there are definitely early investors. If you look at like Ron Cordes and the Cordes Family Foundation, they started um, before 2006, I believe. And um, and that's actually a great example because for for him and, and he speaks about it pretty elo- more eloquently than, than I will do in service right now, but um, you know 2008 happened and they had been investing in artisans in Africa and doing all different things that they start off on their philanthropic side but doing investments where they were for return but they didn't mind if it if the return didn't happen so they were doing it with a philanthropic mindset in their investment portfolio in their family foundation. And then 2008 comes along and, and, you know, hits his portfolio as well as everybody else's pretty hard. And he thought, oh, dear God, like if this happened in my investment portfolio, what on earth happened on my foundation side? And he looked and you know what it turns out? Artisans in Africa had no idea there was a housing crisis in the U.S. And, um, and the banks were folding. So he's like, wait a minute, maybe there's a there there. Like that money all held up fine. And it turns out those who started to do it and do it thoughtfully, it's a great hedge strategy as well. And as more people play with different models of, of impact investing that are aligned with their, their core priorities and core values and find ways to do it where it either works or as a hedge, or you can really do it across asset classes. So for example, in venture, um, if I invest in the IP to double, do the research and find and invest in the IP that doubles the density of lithium air and lithium ion batteries, that means that every electric car goes twice as far, every drone delivers aid twice as far remotely, every solar panel works twice as long. That's a solid impact play. And if every lithium air and lithium ion battery owed me one one thousandth of a penny, I retire tomorrow. Like I would want that type of return in all of my venture portfolio. So people are starting to realize that there's ways to do well and do good. And certainly any company you're investing in that is consumer facing more and more millennials own the wallet, own the, the decisions from the consumer side. So those companies that have strong impact stories and that are not doing harm in the world are going to, by that very definition, be more likely to get more customers and to be more profitable. Or at least certainly on the other side, ones that, that don't have a great impact story, you see millennials en masse moving away from. Got it. So let me ask you a question this way. You go to a, a family office and it's a patriarch, he's 75 years old, and you explain to him impact investing and he understands it conceptually. Is he supposed to look at this and say, okay, I'll, I'm willing to take you know 25 or 50 basis points less return on my portfolio, but do good? Is that how they should look at it that, that they're going to take, in other words, are they going to necessarily have a slightly lower return by doing impact investing, or is that not the case? 
That is one of my favorite questions. That is absolutely not the case. Um, I think one big reason for that misconception is uh, Rockefeller Foundation claims to have coined the phrase impact investing in 2007. And if you look, like the Lutherans have been doing it for, for a century. But the way that we talk about it now, that modern phrase of impact investing was actually the Rockefeller Foundation in 2007, looking at their portfolio and looking at their grant model, where every year, every time you give a grant, 100 cents on every dollar goes away. And then those grantees come back and ask for the same dollar next year right, in the traditional aid model. And they realized that aside from, that wasn't market signaling. So like if you are giving away malaria nets and you flood the market with them and people don't need them anymore, you don't have any market signal of charging five or 10 cents a net even, or 20 cents a net, then you can't see when people no longer need it. And they realized it wasn't efficient and they were actually distorting markets instead of fueling markets. So they shifted this impact investing model in their grant portfolio, where now they expect whether it's, less, let's call it 20 cents back on every dollar. So, and sometimes it's 80 cents back, sometimes it's 10 cents back, but so 20 cents back on every dollar. Now, if you think about their model and how it evolved, they went from zero cents back on every dollar to 20 cents back on every dollar. So look at the alpha of that. That's like, who doesn't want that alpha consistently across their portfolio? So then when you migrate that over to your mindset in your for-profit, again, in venture, in in your ESG and your public portfolio, it should be with that mindset that actually you're doing the same level of diligence. So anything that would have fallen out diligence wise should follow it anyway. Um, but now you're adding an extra layer of saying in the next five to 10 years, does this make the world or whatever it's targeting better or worse? Education, uh, consumer products, whatever it is. So it actually should be at the same basis point or if anything, give you a slight bump in the longer term. So if your priority is only weekly or monthly, potentially, potentially impacts not a strategy for you, quite frankly. But if you're, if you're looking at your portfolio and looking at protecting and growing your wealth over the next five or 10 years, it should not be concessionary. If it is, you're doing it wrong and you're, you're actually slacking on some of your diligence. Um, and you see that from some of the early days, you had really bright, well-intentioned investors in the family office space and elsewhere who, for their traditional portfolio, do due diligence and risk analysis. And somehow on the impact side, and these are the ones that were showing up even five, 10 years ago, they're like, oh, saves fuzzy bunnies, here's a check. And they'd hand off a check and forget to do any of the diligence at all that they would always do. And they don't demand a board seat. They don't demand quarterly reports. They don't demand management changes when the numbers are off by 5x because that, that social entrepreneur is just so committed and passionate. You would never do that in your core portfolio. And if you did, you would have concessionary returns there too. So I guess my one of my bigger messages when I work with people on the direct side is um, if you show up to be concessionary, you will, but you'll also be a bad steward of the things you're investing in versus showing up with the same level of diligence and rigor and making sure that in addition to financial returns, it's also doing what it purports to do on the impact side. So another question I have, and again, I talk, you know, we represent a hundred single family offices and I talk with them and you know, roughly a third of them are into impact investing. Was there a tipping point or why over the last, let's just say five to 10 years, has this become such a thing? I think one of the tipping points is the fact that millennials are starting to control wallet and millennials, again, we're watching an inconvenient truth in college. They saw, they were born 
during or right at some of them after the uh, first Earth Summit at the UN. And so this has been the reality since they were born. And they're much more aware of the climate crisis and that there won't be air to breathe in their lifetime versus for their parents, for the patriarchs. It was in, you know, hypothetically for the next generation or the one after that. And, and they could decide to believe that, well, there'll be some, you know, something will come along to clean the air, something will come along, it'll just get fixed, or it won't matter, I'm not around. And for those who are millennials and younger, they don't have that luxury of time. Uh, so it's starting to evolve much more quickly, partly for that. Also, again, with the UN, there were the Millennium Development Goals came about in 2000. And fun fact, little known history for, for the audience, is uh, Kofi Annan was the Secretary General of the UN. Um, at that time, and he saw in 92 was the Earth Summit, and the needle hadn't really moved by 2000. He became Secretary General in, I think, 97. And so he said, you know, we need to do something. And it was the new millennium. So 2000, let's find goals for the planet that we can all work on together. So he got together a group of eight men and sent them down to a basement office two hours before they were going to vote during UN General Assembly Week in New York and say, come up with some goals for us. And these men came up with six goals for the planet on reducing infant mortality and on alleviating hunger and poverty, things like that. And as they were walking upstairs to walk in for this vote, as Lord Malik from the UK tells it, who's one of these eight men, he happened to walk by the head of UN Environment Program and said, oh my God, environment, because they totally forgot to write that as a goal. So he quickly wrote that down as goal number seven and then added goal number eight of partnerships for development. And they walked in and it got voted on and approved because they're all totally big. And awesomely, if you were the head, the, uh, the minister of environment for your country or the minister of education or health or a prime minister or president, if you weren't there that day, you didn't even know about those goals till they were voted on. And then you fast forward to 2012 was Rio plus 20 uh, celebration. And, and so the year before that, we started all of these uh, input meetings to what should be talked about then. And people realized that in 2015, these millennium development goals that had largely not been met, no shock, um, were going to sunset. So from 2011 in these preparatory meetings, you had very big investors and, um, and very big companies, part of this input process to what comes next, as well as civil society, as well as governments. And you ended up having a four year process to say, what should the goals be? What's important? And it was much more rigorous and it ended up with organizations representing trade unions and representing investor groups and representing all these different groups that came together. So when these 17 sustainable development goals were voted in, you suddenly had hundreds of millions of people who that reported out back to. And that jumped everything forward. And then the biggest thing, and the last thing on this, is that one of the biggest shortcomings of these those millennium development goals was because of the way they were created, no one ever asked, what are the metrics to measure this or what will they cost? And people realized that was a shortcoming. So 2015, the sustainable development goals, the SDGs are voted in. And in 2016, these all 193 countries that are members of the UN got together with their economists and said, what will this cost? And this is really the the turning point, not just for the UN, but for the private sector, uh, it turns out it will cost seven to nine trillion dollars annually to achieve the sustainable development goals by 2030. And this was a huge epiphany for the UN because it turns out if you took all of that philanthropic money, so from family offices and others, all the philanthropic money in the world is targeted toward these SDGs and all the government grant money that's targeted toward them, you still have a $2.5 trillion gap annually to achieve the SDGs by 2030. And so then the UN realized for the first time ever, they can't get there without working with the private sector. 
So they've now started with UNPRI, the Principles for Responsible Investing, which many of your family offices, uh, the larger ones, may be signatories of. It has thousands of investor signatories. Uh, started to say, hey, we, we need to figure out what to do to steward our money in a way that also stewards the planet. And that was, so in 2015, was uh, 2016 actually, with the financing for development was a big turning point along with the fact that the next gens and and in school my 12 year old niece was doing modules on the sustainable development goals last month so they're starting to learn about it and and see how that is a frame for which you look at every investment i mean shockingly if you go on monsanto's website they talk about the nine sustainable development goals that they're targeting now one could argue whether or not that's greenwashing that's maybe for another podcast but the fact that there's awareness and people are putting a stake in the ground so that they can get called out on it is a lot different than five or ten years ago can you go a little deeper into these stgs that the next gens really keep focusing on because i hear this over and over again sure um i mean the sustainable development goals these sdgs are Basically, it's 17 goals, of which the last one is partnerships for development. But more importantly, there's targets. So there's 169 targets. So behind each goal, there are specific targets. And um, like, I'll just give you as an example of a goal. I won't clearly go into 169 targets. But one of the goals, the second one is zero hunger. And you'll have Pepsi and Coca-Cola that each say, we're about zero hunger. But actually, if you read just the one sentence version, the official one of the goal, it's end hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. So you have a lot of family offices actually that, that rally around that. And one could argue that Coke and Pepsi are not actually leading the way on improving nutrition in the world. They are doing some amazing things and they actually do some very real things in targeting safe water and, and sustainable agriculture because they need to uh, just for the corn syrup and rice uh, and, and other, other inputs to other chips and things of theirs. But for family offices, a lot of this resonated with what they were doing anyway and what they cared about. And sometimes with the origin story of where the wealth came from, if it came from education or if it came from healthcare, looking at what do we need to do? And then on the flip side on stewardship, you see what's happening uh, rightly, maybe to the Sackler family and to others who were bad stewards and how they made their money. And they're starting to be held to account in a way that where they weren't before. So you also see where families want to have more awareness just from a risk perspective of where am I doing harm? And can I mitigate that harm? Can I do my business in a different way where I'm making the money without the downside? That's I think been a wake up call, certainly for the patriarch generation and for the generation after it, they're, they're witnessing all these harms that are happening around them and just don't want to stand for it anymore. So a lot of families are starting to view impact as sort of a checkbox. Um, this investment will have positive impact because it relates to education, but they don't do any measurement or evaluation beyond the feel good story. Does that work for you? And if not, what can they do to measure that won't be onerous or overly expensive? Obviously it doesn't work for me. Uh, it, many families definitely do it that way. And some wealth advisors and asset managers do it that way where they have shiny like one page stories. But when you ask questions, they don't actually measure. They just feel like, you know, inherently this is good. And education is a great example as you brought up. So education, a lot of times, even those who measure, measure outputs instead of outcomes. So how many students went to school. How many more students did we reach? Did we enroll in school? And they don't even go to an output of how many graduated, much less an outcome of how many got jobs in the community where they hadn't been able to before. 
And so you find A, people are wasting money. Um, B, your competition that measures outcomes is probably going to, in the long term, outperform you because they'll have a better story and they'll actually do things and, and crowd more money in that, that is looking for outcomes uh, over the long term. And some of it, it can be onerous, but it doesn't have to be. There is a, certainly a lot of organizations out there that have uh, the GIN, the Global Impact Investing Network, um, and Tonic, which ironically, so GIN is G-I-I-N, Tonic is T-O-N-I-I-C. Tonic, I learned not that long ago, is not an acronym for anything. They just thought it was really funny since there was GIN with two eyes to be Tonic with two eyes. But they're uh, a network of family offices who decided that they want to learn from each other. And so they have a lot of easy, there's actually free stuff you can go, you don't even have to join. You can just go online to the Impact or Tonic to their websites and, and download things to start to look at how they're measuring. And in the same type of family office environments where they only have a certain amount of resources. But even just on a base level without going into detail on measuring every aspect of your business, one thing that, uh, that I came up with and, and introduced and lecture on, I came from Bain. Um, back back at the beginning of my journey after grad school. And I noticed that even whether it's Bain or McKinsey or, or any investors now, it's really easy to either intentionally or unintentionally only measure metrics that, that prove out your concept. Um, and what I mean by that is like, you look at Tom's shoes, which most people know, you buy a pair of shoes, give a pair of shoes to someone in need. And so he decided to measure an out, of how many shoes have I distributed when um, he went to true scale. So it started to go viral and now makes millions and millions of shoes. And essentially by in one phone call, as a real example, he, he delivered 4 million pairs of shoes, which he handed off, called an unsuspecting nonprofit in Haiti and said, congratulations, we're sending you 4 million pairs of shoes. What does that do? That flooded the market with free shoes. So all the mom and pop microfinance shoe manufacturers lost their jobs. And if he decided to, this is where the, what I came up with is looking at, uh, if you look at contraindicating KPIs, so what are your key performance indicators that would say, actually, what I'm doing isn't necessarily working the way I meant to? And if he monitored, if he said, you know, if I reach true scale, who will I displace? And just ask that one simple question. And his idea was, well, you know, so a couple of people lose their jobs, but I'm saving thousands of lives. Um, arguably, in some of these communities, the people can't, aren't even using the shoes um, or using them as house slippers, depending if it's muddy outside and in certain communities that the shoes don't actually work that well. Um, and it was thousands of people that lost their jobs. But if you were measuring that contraindicating uh, KPI, you'd see right away after the first 300 or 1,000 people lost their jobs. And you can go back. I don't actually want to make this just about current and just about social entrepreneurs or direct. If you look at Nestle's, during um, in 1974. So let's go way back in the day before there was impact investing as a term. And with a big corporate company, they had this great idea, as many of your listeners know, of going into Africa. And by expanding to Africa, they thought they would do this by handing out free milk to new moms for a month. And of course, what happens when you do that? The mother's milk dries up. Uh, so now she has no choice. But this was in Africa where a lot of women couldn't afford the formula. 
And so they ended up turning instead, their babies needed to drink something and they had no more milk. They weren't producing milk. So they ended up feeding these babies dirty water from the, the rivers and lakes nearby and babies died. And somehow Nestle's, you'd think after the first 10,000 babies died, someone would have noticed someone, but Nestle's is off in Switzerland. So maybe they weren't on the ground at the time. So they didn't notice. You would think at least after the first 100,000 babies died, someone would have said something. Um, but no, they actually let it go. And 1 million babies died that year from this program. And so that's what I mean by if you have the contraindicating KPIs, you know that much faster. Like, are people using my product? And if not, what are they doing instead? And is it better or worse for them? And what happened with Nestle's, there ended up being a global boycott. This is before the time of social media and not just a US boycott, but global. It hit their bottom line. So awesomely, you didn't have to care about impact. You just had to have Nestle's in your portfolio to have it impact your income as an investor. And imagine that now in the age of social media, in the age of global, of, of eye reporters and television stations everywhere, that would wipe out a company. It certainly, it, it took a big hit to Volkswagen when they falsified their, their impact statement. And you see where suddenly you, you can't do that. So you want to, if you're a company, you definitely want to be measuring what are the unintended consequences of my actions and be there getting that, that feedback loop of those contraindicating KPIs. And if you're an investor, you want to make sure that those are in place. If you're not doing it yourself, that the companies you're investing in are doing it. So you're just getting a report from them. You don't have to do it on your own. You just have to ask the right questions and make sure that the companies that you're working with are giving you transparent answers on their impact side as well as on their financial side. So it seems like there's a ton of unintended consequences and this really, you have to really think through everything about impact investing. So question I have for you is um, with impact investing becoming so popular with the family offices and as it gains traction, are they actually teaching things, impact investing courses, uh, concepts in the, in the universities right now? Is this an educational thing that that's really gaining traction? Absolutely. They're starting to. Um, there's more and more courses touch on it and, um, and on sustainability as a concept. So like regenerative agriculture. So some very specific siloed things. Impact investing is just starting to, to be taught as a course. And I'm actually in talks right now with, with Harvard Business School on, um, on writing up a bunch of case studies for them. I lecture there annually on a heuristic framework on just 10 questions to ask, 10 negative frame questions like the, if I reach true scale, who do I displace? Or who will be my opposer and what might they do for retribution? Things like when uh, fracking bragged about turning the U.S. to be energy independent and obviously OPEC was always going to block that or, or be threatened by that. And what did they do to retaliate? They, they dropped the barrel price in half. That was noble. I mean, aside from let's assume fracking was a healthy alternative. Um, but so just questions, diligence questions to ask on the impact side of what could go wrong with my assumptions and how can I see that up front? And so with HBS, um, from this lecture that I've given, we're, we're looking at turning that into an adjunct course and currently out for grantors to write to, on, to fund the writing of a lot of these case studies so that everyone can learn together. And, uh, and so what's important is right now there's a, 
we're lacking a little bit in, in case studies on impact, not for them not being out there, but, but for them not being written up to be taught as courses yet. And so there's, there's started to be some movement toward a real desire to fund those cases because uh, when people graduate from any of the top schools, from any school, undergrad or graduate, they're graduating into work in an environment where these things matter but they're not necessarily getting the training yet. So um, we're looking for grant funding to, to help underwrite, making sure that we level up everybody at the same time and not just those first movers. So we're, I'm quite curious as far as where family offices come in. Are family offices driving this? In a large sense, they are. Um, but again, it's, they're, they're driving it from the investor side, certainly more than other type of investors. But again, you have um, on the sustainable development goals, you ironically have some, some big companies. Uh, you also have some asset managers like the Black Rocks of the world who've been called out pretty loudly for the fact that they essentially, by, by not voting their proxies and siding with management, have been blocking a lot of impact initiatives. And so you look at two years ago, up to, well, from the 80s with Exxon and, and other fossil fuel companies, there were just this little, you know, one to 3% at shareholder meetings that were, that, that were out there saying, hey, this isn't good for the climate. And that slowly, slowly grew to two years ago, it was a 38% shareholder block that actually tried to overthrow the chair and demand that they put climate risk on their uh, climate change footprint on their website and, and account for climate risk in their annual report. And I've been saying for a long time that I totally disagree with the divestment movement, the mindset of sell your shares to someone who doesn't care, because people who care are not buying up large amounts of shares, and then um, celebrate that and no longer be at the table. And you have you know, Trillium, who I massively respect and does a lot of amazing shareholder proxy stuff in every other area, and the same with Rockefeller Brothers, but them and all these university endowments that have divested and aren't at the table. And still you have this 38% shareholder block that, that tried to demand some actions on accountability on climate change and a 41% block at Chevron the next year, the next week. Uh, and then all of a sudden last year, there was this huge shift and it went from a 38% block to a 62% block. And that's what changed everything. And what happened in the interim is BlackRock flipped and BlackRock, awesomely flipped in part, not related to climate at all, but because of a completely unrelated LGBTQ uh, shareholder proxy campaign at John Deere that Trillium was leading and Trillium won it. And it was just to have equal rights um, respected in their employees that are LGBTQ as those that aren't. And um, as Matt Paskey, the CEO of Trillium would tell it, they, um, they won and it was like 52 or 54% vote. So there's that moment of celebration. And then that step back of like, wait a minute, who was in this other 40 something percent that tried to block this? And sure enough, the largest shareholder blocking it was BlackRock. And he went to them and said, you know, what's up? Because it was in line with BlackRock's own internal policies and yet they blocked it. And BlackRock said, uh, no, we actually were working with them directly. So we didn't want to go against that. And, uh, and then, so Trillium went to John Deere 
and said, you know, you never told us you're working with BlackRock. And they said, what are you talking about? They, they've never called us. No one called us until you brought this proxy vote. At which point, Trillium got frustrated and did a large press release, so one can look it up, um, calling out BlackRock and got some positive feedback even from BlackRock employees saying, keep doing what you're doing. And so you have internally, BlackRock's been saying for years that they have at least a trillion dollars of theirs that's impact aligned. And that's part of their recruiting process, right, to, to hire younger, really sharp, top quality employees, and they're starting to move up. And then you have investors, and now the media and, and other companies calling them out. And so they, they had their own, Larry Fink and his team had a meeting and realized that they needed to be better stewards. And if they're investing in institutional money, and they're investing it in a way for pensioners, they're investing in a way that isn't responsible 10 years out, that's a problem. Um, there, no pensioners that are in BlackRock want them to be day trading it to just make a buck in the next three months at the cost of the five-year or 10-year. So they, they flipped and they started voting their conscience and actually voted with the proxy vote. And because they did, so did State Street and Vanguard. So you went from 38% to 62% in one year. And uh, what's most interesting about that, as far as the knock-on effects, is that then when you have Trump elected and and he backed out of the climate accords, who was the first to say, we're still in, Exxon. So because of the shareholder engagement, Exxon and others, regardless of what goes on, regardless of anyone's politics, regardless of what goes on in Washington, these companies are, are in and are in it for the long haul. And it's because of their investors, their larger institutional ones, their larger family offices. And as the Black Rocks and Vanguards and State Streets of the world are starting to take stands in proxy votes that that are more in line with what their investors want they're getting more positive feedback for that and they're finding that often it actually doesn't cost them in the bottom line i speak with cios of, of large multi-billion dollar family offices who who don't believe in impact or don't believe in climate change and one of my favorite conversations is okay like let's just set it aside let's assume that all of climate change man-made climate change is a hoax i hear you um, Separately from that, let's just look at China and how much they've invested, regardless of why, how much they've invested in renewables and solar and in wind. And because of their investments, that's comparable to, to natural gas and to other uh, fossil fuel alternatives, uh, largely. And they're continuing to invest, so that price is going to continue to drop. So that's just one fact. And then separately, there's going to be a climate tax in Europe sometime in the next five years. Uh, will there ever be one in the U.S.? Probably not. Let's just go with absolutely not. But there will be in Europe and in China, where in the largest cities where the wealthiest people live and the government senior people live, when you walk out, the air quality is like breathing on the top of the pile on 9-11 every single day. So they're going to do something market signaling, whether you call it a carbon tax or something else. They'll be doing something market signaling because, again, they're working on investing in renewables and cleaning up the air because the senior leadership are dying of the same respiratory diseases as firemen from 9-11. Yeah, it's an, and it's amazing. You know, I could probably talk to you for hours uh, about this, but we are running out of time. You are one of the top you know, thought leaders in this space. Um, if people, viewers from the audience wanted to get in touch with you or get a hold of you and learn more about impact, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, the best thing is just email me at TK, so Tammy Kesselman, at alignedinvesting.global. Well, Tammy, it's been fascinating. Conversation's great. I always love hearing you speak. Uh, you always get tremendous response at the family office conferences. 
keep doing what you're doing. And I'm, I'm very happy to say, to call you a friend and a great advocate for impact investing. So thank you. Thank you, Ron. I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck. I, I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.